Hello! You're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Yeah, for some reason, I ended up in a in a kind of reverie that I was listening to the podcast, not actually starring mm-hmm. in the podcast. <laughs> It sounded like, oh, like you were bursting out of a box then. Yeah, I just, I was, oh no, I did, I've got a reply. So I, I <laughs> quickly caught up. I was, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Well, <laughs> that's why we're recording to find out. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. good. Thank you, Frank. I'm much better than last week, actually. I'm very glad to hear it. Days yeah. ever so slightly longer than when we last spoke. Brilliant. That's exactly what we want to hear. How about you? Everything going well? Yeah, everything is going well, actually. Yeah, lovely and sunny here and just happy to be sitting recording with you it's good to be doing oh well isn't that nice i'm a nice guy (laughs) so it'll be a couple of weeks ago now since we we spent some time together for what we we called drawn to the flame con it was you and me (laughs) for a weekend it It wasn't really a convention but we over the course of about 48 hours we managed to play lots of different games including some arkham but we wanted to talk about Oh, I've suggested we look at some of the other games we played, some of which we've talked about on the podcast before. And yeah, I just want um, the the exam question I've posed is, is what lessons did we learn from these games? Yeah. And maybe are there any of those lessons that might help us in Arkham as well? Or maybe not. Never so, go yeah. up against a Sicilian when death is on the cards. <laughs> exactly. That's just one of the many lessons we learned yeah. that weekend. So yeah, well, do we want to talk about what we played first, and then yes, we'll, yeah. or do we should do it in order? I think maybe do it in order because it leads neatly to a more Arkham adjacent game by the end. Oh yeah, that's a nice a nice build up. Yeah, yeah. So the first game we played was High Frontier. Yes, I think you should describe this game for listeners. Oh man, how to describe this game? Uh, Is it even a game? Well, barely. <laughs> it's an experience more than a game. Now, I've kind of had my eye on it for some time, and they did a Kickstarter for the new edition a couple of years ago, and I I think I played it a couple of times. It's like a baby mode you can play in third edition, and I played that a couple of times and really enjoyed it, mm. and it was hard to buy. You'd have to find like a second-hand copy, and it could be quite expensive, so I jumped in when they did the Kickstarter for the new edition. And I splashed out extra for the big neoprene mat of the the solar system you get with it. Which covered pretty much my entire table. More than your whole table, I think. So it's it's described on the box as, I think, a game of exo-globalisation or something. (laughs) (laughs) Broadly, it's about building factories in space. Yeah. Finding water and then building factories on where there is water. uh, And getting points as a result. Mm -hmm. Making making Mm -hmm. things in, in space. As you mentioned, the board is a map of the solar system. So you're flying out from Earth and trying to then colonise these little planets, or not even colonise them, just put factories on them and go from there. It has a pretty vigorous, pretty detailed system for burning fuel to fly around the solar system. So yeah. that's definitely part of the... The challenge and the fun of the game is working out the mass, both dry and wet, of your <laughs> spacecraft. Yeah. And then how much fuel it's going to take. And obviously, the heavier your spacecraft is, 
the more fuel per thrust, all of this stuff, kind of complicated. Yeah, I think I'm glad we played this first when I was yeah. about as fresh as I could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 quite expansive. I don't necessarily think it's there's no element of it which is probably overly complex. It's just there's a lot of it mm. to to try and keep mm. in your head because there's a lot of different systems that all work in slightly different ways. Yeah, it, it's it's vast. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, vast and is it, a very good word for it. it. And it creates an experience more like playing something like what's it called, Kerbal Space Program. Mm-hmm. where you're experimenting to find the right things. I think one of the things I find interesting about it is there's a lot of options when you play it. And, and, and it's it's hard, because there's so many options, it's hard to necessarily identify a single optimal path to do something. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of trade-offs you have to consider. Like, you could get somewhere faster, but it costs a lot more to do that. Yes. How much yeah. of your hardened currency is it worth to get there quicker? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Bearing in mind that you can't also be doing other stuff at the same time. Yeah. The game we played had a 48 turn limit. So it's 12 turns per rotation. Yes. We did four rotations. If we'd played the full game, it would have been, what, seven rotations? Yeah, I think it depends. You can pick different lengths, I think, um, depending on, on what expansions you've included. And in, in the version we were playing, it's very hard to reach the outer limits of the solar system. It's very hard to get past sort of the Mars, the is the the, the asteroid belt between Mars and the next planet along. I can't remember, but but it's it's hard to get into the outer planets really. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, I I tried, but we didn't get very far. <laughs> yeah, and I think adding to what you said, one of the things that was very challenging first experiencing the game is knowing what I could or couldn't do knowing what was within my limits or not because the game like you say there's a lot of systems in front of you that you're building spacecraft I of course don't know all of the spacecraft options so I didn't know if this card that's five mass is that a really heavy card or is that actually really light for the factory I want to make and am I getting a good deal there so there's a lot of information that you just don't know is this is this good value or not, and then within the time span, exactly the same. If it's going to take me three turns to fly to these asteroids outside of Mars, is that good or is that actually wasting time? And would more efficient plays be something completely different? Incidentally, I was reading a designer diary for Root. And one of the things that cropped up for that, and Root is going to be another game we talk about, spoiler, they were talking about the two-player experience of Root, and particularly cats versus birds. And the designer said, Cole Whirler said, cats versus birds, birds should always win. You can win as cats, but you can only make one mistake. Right, okay, wow. (laughs) And... Obviously, the people playing that and describing that have played lots, cats versus birds, but they're evaluate. you know, they get to the point where you play a perfect game and you can get one thing wrong. And of course, when I played High Frontier, I probably played a lot of things wrong, but the game is so vast, you don't know. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and not necessarily, like, a mistake can be, well, you could... It's like I said, you've got a, you've got a lot of axes on which to make uh, decisions. 
and it's very hard to plot, especially at the level of knowledge we've got, to plot an optimal course through those. Mm. Is this yeah. is this leading into an observation for Arkham then? It reminded me of being a new player in Arkham. Mm-hmm. And I thought, again, I haven't taught anyone Arkham for quite a long time. But how do you teach a new player Arkham? And is the best way of just essentially getting them to draw five cards and start playing the gathering? And when I compare how controlled an environment the gathering is for first experience in Arkham, it really is completely the opposite in High Frontier. You know, it took probably, what, 45 minutes for you just explaining the game. Yeah. And that was necessary because if we just started, I think I would have got really stuck really quickly. Although there was, I suppose there is another, the, the, the similarity here is after a couple of turns, you said you kind of just need to take a space flight and see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. you know, you'd already, I think, set off to Mars. So I, I'd seen you doing that. So I had a sense of like, okay, this is how much fuel I'm probably going to need. What do I want to take with me? If I take all of these things with me, I'm going to need a lot more fuel. So you have to do some of that initial calculating. But then once you actually fly, it's quite interesting. Over a four-hour game, the first flight probably took the first two hours. In the (laughs) last hour of the game, I launched three more because I got a lot more confidence of, I'm pretty sure this will be enough. Quick tally. Yeah, okay. Have I forgotten anything? No. Let's go. So, yeah, how does that relate to Arkham? I suppose... Well, just if I can jump in for a sec. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned this because I've been teaching friends to play Age of Sigmar recently. I've taught a couple of friends to play Age of Sigmar. Mm. And that's, again, a, a, a set of rules which is very broad. There's lots of different things you do. There's lots of phases you've got to go through. Although it seems simple to me, who was brought up playing earlier editions of the game, which had a lot more... Yeah, without wanting to get too much into it, more recently Games Workshop has had the tendency to offload complexity to the to the kind of unit specific rules. So rather than having simple unit rules but complex core rules, they've got simpler core rules but very complex unit rules. And this yeah. can make playing certain armies very mentally demanding. <laughs> yeah, just because there's so many rules that interact within an individual codex. Uh, but anyway, aside from all that. A tactic for teaching it is to ask people what they want to do kind of narratively with each of their units. So be like, well, these guys can shoot, they can run, they can kind of leg it into combat and try and hit them. Which of those things sounds good to you? And then explain how they work at that point, rules-wise. Rather than giving them the rules for shooting, running, for legging it into combat. Yeah, and then say, which of these do you want to do? Yeah, yeah. I think that's very neat. I have just been looking at Dungeon Universalis, which is not just a... Sounds like such a a name for it. A classic name for a game Frank would like. (laughs) Well, you can see why the YouTube algorithm has been suggesting it to me. It's a board game, dungeon crawler. I mean, I don't know very much about it. I'm not speaking from a position of much knowledge or expertise here. But it's also geared up that if you want to play it as a role-playing game, you can. And it has solo modes and skirmish modes and all sorts of things. Anyway, one of the reviews I was watching, basically its biggest criticism is how complex it is. And the core rule book, which doesn't contain any of the rules for individual enemies, is 120 pages long. And in new, the new version of the game has a quick start guide, 
that is 40 pages long. Right. And, you know, that that's it's quite a lot of rules to get to to grapple with. And it's one of these games where rather than hiding things behind a kind of careful on ramp to get you going and get you started and hooked, it says, no, here are all the rules. Have a great time. Which is somewhat similar to High Frontier. We played with without a lot of the rules and the player reference card showed us all of the rules and we had to do that like, oh, hang on, any rules that have blue text we're not actually using and yeah. and get our heads around that. So yeah, you sort of have to limit. So what Arkham does well in The Gathering is that you don't even know how moving works in the first instance because you're in a single room and you don't need to worry about resign or parlay right away because that only comes up later in the scenario. So yeah, it it creates a very controlled environment to first experience the game, which makes sense because you're also going to have a handful of cards you're reading and trying to work out if they're good or not and all of that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing I really got from High Frontier, which I just alluded to about those sort of by the end of the game taking lots of space flights, and it was a point that you made a couple of times, is that it really forces you as a game to just go for it and to make do with what you have. The yes. mistake, as far as I understand, is that you start trying to build the perfect spacecraft and loading it with exactly the right pieces, you know, your crew, the perfect thruster, a Robonaut. You're like, oh, this is going to be so good. And then part of how the game works is that you just need to crack on. Yes. And if you spend yeah, your time 100%. doing that, you because you're going to do a single operation a turn, you can spend a lot of time doing that while someone else is off flying, colonizing, making factories. Part of when you build factories on other planets, you lose some of the parts from your ship normally. Yeah. So if you've spent all this time getting the perfect things, you're going to be disappointed really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and the way the actions work is that you you, you can take an operation and then you can move your rocket every turn. But until you have a rocket, you're wasting the opportunity to move a rocket. Mm-hmm. I think this this is a great lesson for Arkham, really, isn't it? It's like pe- people want to be set up with all the parts in their deck. But sometimes, Frank, you've got to commit that uh, golden pocket watch for the single <laughs> wild icon, haven't you? Yeah, you do, sometimes. And, and, and more than that, I'd say that Arkham creates a really fascinating balancing act between setting yourself up and making progress. And there are just as many decks that falter because someone has rushed off, like, I'm going to go get clues, we need to get clues to progress. And they're not really geared up enough to do that efficiently, as there are times where they've spent too long setting up. And I like that each deck has its own kind of break point about how much setup they really need to make progress. Even when we played Arkham in the evening, we were playing our cursed team. By the end of the scenario, Jacqueline has a lot of pieces so that she can really manipulate the, the chaos bag. Whereas Trish has some cards down, but is running a lot lighter. It's a lot more of an event-based deck. She's already got stats that she can kind of hang what she's doing off her agility and intellect so she doesn't need more things. Yeah. So yeah, that point of what's enough setup is different per, by investigator. It reminded me as well that final flight I took reminded me of times in Arkham where you say well normally I want to be four up to take this enemy apart but sometimes you just have to take the swings at one up and hope for the best and sometimes you win (laughs) like there's a 
Think on Your Feet Lola episode I did, where over four actions I killed a Yidian observer. I had no right killing it, but I managed it. Just, I'd failed two of the tests, but passed two. I think I got a plus one and an elder sign, which is what got me the pass. So, you know, it can be easy to be really bogged down in the playing well side of Arkham and playing a game like High Frontier that's so hard to get my head around that I couldn't play it well. I just had to play it. It was really refreshing and really enjoyable. The following morning, incidentally, Peter brought the rules out at breakfast to start trying to teach me the extended rules. (laughs) We're more trying to teach myself, to be honest. Yeah, it lit a fire under you, didn't it? It did, yeah, yeah. It's one of those games, when I've played it, I want to play it again. Mm, Yeah. I think I wanted to sleep by the end of our four-hour session. (laughs) So... Then the following day, we played a couple of different games. We had a few friends over, so a five-player. Hi, if you're listening. And in the morning into the afternoon, we played Root. Yes, a a favourite of both of ours, I believe. Yes, and one of the few games that we've talked about on this kind of dedicated entire episode to Root. Yeah, we did, indeed, of our our separate short-lived podcast, uh, Lost in the Woods, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Drawn to the Flame and Lost in the Woods. We played a five-player game. Yes. We had the Marquise de Cat, which was me. We had the Woodland Alliance, the uh, Riverfolk Company, the Otters, who are the sort of mercantile trading faction. We had the Underground Duchy, the Moles, and we had the Corvid Conspiracy, who are the plotting crows who go around setting traps, which was you. So yes, I was indeed. playing OG, the first faction you encounter from the from the core set, and you were playing one of the newest factions as of the time of recording, the Corvid Conspiracy. Yeah. It was a pretty darn fierce game. If you've not heard our previous Root episode, the sort of the big picture what Root is, it's beautiful, cuddly woodland, lots of clearings, lovely animals fighting ferociously it's a pretty fierce (laughs) asymmetric war game yeah where people's route to victory is all about accumulating 30 points but each faction accumulates points in a slightly different way and some factions start fast and slow down and others explode into life and at the end of the game you had won yes you'd scored about 10 points in the last turn i think it might have been more than that, actually. Mm. I don't know whether I flipped a plot on that last turn as well. Okay, yeah. You can't remember. Six it. from a favour. Yeah, then crafted two. at least something. I crafted the favour that turn. I think I might have got 12 points on the last turn. So I think I killed two items, I crafted something, I, I flipped a plot for four, and then I favoured for six. It was something along those lines, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So that's, well, considering if, if I did get 12 points in that turn, the, the the total you need for victory is 30 points. It's the first to get to 30 wins. Mm-hmm. So that's nearly half of the points I needed in a single turn. Yeah. E- yeah. Even if it was only 10 points, that's still a third of the points I needed in a single turn. So I, I think what's interesting about Root is the politics that you have to play at the table. I, I probably said this when we recorded our last episode. Mm-hmm. I think one of the real skills is identifying who's got kind of point scoring potential and how that relates to their current position. One of the reasons 
I, I think the Cats are difficult to play for a number of reasons, but one of them is that they start in a strong position and gaining points early is quite easy. Mm-hmm. So they immediately look like they're going to be a threat. A major threat, yeah. But as the Cats, it's so easy to burn out once you get to sort of 15-ish points. It's very easy to get to there, but very hard to get above there. Yeah. And also at that point, everyone's realised you're getting loads of points and they start hammering on you. Yes, yeah. Because the Cats get points by building. Yes. They can build in the clearings that they control early on and it looks like they're dominant. But mm. then for any further point scoring, they need to expand. And pretty much any other clearing they want to hold to build into is going to be more precarious than whatever kind of stronghold they've built. Yeah. So that's four clearings. So there was a point at which in the game, people were saying you're in such a strong position. To me, I was the cats. And I was looking, going, if I want to build anything, I've got to push out into a clearing with five moles in it or four otters or four crows. You know, these all of these clearings did not look enticing to try and go and and fight in to be able to then build a building and consolidate power. Yeah, it was really threatening. Meanwhile, you as the crows, you were sort of uh, in last place for most of the game, right? I think I was in last, either last or second last place for the entire game until I won. I yeah. think that's that's true. And everyone else was around 15 to 20 points at the yeah. end of the game. So it was really, I think, in many ways, what I like the most about Root, that it was sort of all of us jostling for position. It didn't feel like there was someone who shot ahead in points and then no one could catch them. Quite the opposite. People were pulled back. There was a lot of, of pushing around. And that, I think, links back to the politics that you were able to present yourself as not a threat throughout until yes. the point when you were scoring 12 points and we were all going, hang on, the crows are a threat. The crows are a threat. Yeah, yeah, like, watch the crows. They just secretly hid that favour in their hand for some time. Yeah, that was very nice. Very nice. Yeah, th- th- this is why I love, th- when you have the artists in the game especially, you, you force people to engage with that side of the game. Mm-hmm. So you really need to be... I don't know, persuasive that <laughs> you're not a threat and everyone else is a threat. I think it's it's a big tool that I, I broadly I would say the crows are probably a bit underpowered. I think that's that's a general consensus because his lies already in well, preparation for the next game. But I think you're very easy to stop if people know what you're planning. Yeah, and we saw that early on where one person was able to easily guess what I was doing. I made a conscious effort to stay away from them after that. <laughs> it was easier to pick on everyone else. Yeah. Some of us were not able to guess what you were doing. Yeah. So there's a fascinating thing there around, I suppose, around everyone being the missing part of someone else's puzzle, which we definitely talked about in the previous episode. In that yeah. article I was reading, one of the things it pointed out was that for three or more players, combat is much more useful because if you decide so if i me player a decides that player b is a threat and i go and fight with them if i come out of that well i will then be the threat to player c who will come for me if i come out of that badly it's then even more obvious to player c that player b is a threat and they should understand that and target them as well and one of the things that happened in our root game was we identified the otters and the moles as threats 
and between me and the Woodland Alliance and also paying for the otters, all of those factions fought with each other. And at no point did anyone say the threat is the crows. The crows managed to fly under the radar enough that no one said, well, hang on, we've thumped everyone else. When are we going to thump the crows? So, yeah, that was my big, big mistake that I have that I'm ruined. I got another lesson out of it. My Arkham adjacent lesson as the cats. It did feel like I was stuttering for a lot of the game. And I found that I just that I persevered more than I thought I could. You just have to keep looking for the little wins, I thought. And there's something I find that that sometimes happens in Arkham as well. You can halfway through a scenario, you can think, well, this one is toast. But if you can just keep going or say, well, well, right, let's just narrow it down to this turn. How do I complete this turn? What do I do? Okay, I've pulled myself out of that hole a little bit. What do I? What's the highest priority next turn? I can't do all of these things, but how do I just get to the finish line? That that could be useful. I felt like I was always fighting a war on at least two fronts the whole way through the game. So it was almost every turn was about being selective of who, where I spent my actions. The 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 cats have three actions a turn, so it's somewhat similar to playing in Arkham. And you always wish you had five or six actions a turn. There's so much to do and so much you want to do. So yeah, it's a maybe it's a a quality that's valuable to have in Arkham as well, which is don't give up. This is becoming like a a self help or a podcast, <laughs> isn't it? Hang don't in there, give up, friend. Yeah, hang in there. You're doing great. Any lessons from the game that you think are, are Arkham adjacent, Arkham appropriate? It, it's a difficult one because it's such a route is so competitive that, that that always feels like the thrust to me. But I think there is an element of the the, the communication around the table is really important, mm-hmm. and I appreciate we're, we're limited and well, different groups are limited by different amounts in uh, in Arkham depending on how strictly you interpret rules about secrecy. Mm-hmm. But even yeah. then, having those good plans as a team, it, like, I could have been defeated if my enemies had talked to each other or someone had thought about what I was doing, and then mm-hmm. straight away, it, it, my whole plan would have fallen apart. In fact, it yeah. hinged on a, on a crucial last-turn flip of a plot, which you tried to guess on your turn. Yeah, and, thanks for reminding me. And didn't. And then when we talked about it later... <laughs> One of the, the the player who was playing the mole said, "Well, obviously I would have guessed this, and that's exactly what it was." <laughs> yeah. So if you two had talked, and in fact you were gonna get, you were gonna guess what that plot was, mm-hmm. one way, and then one of the other players said, "Oh, well, I thought it would be this," and then that instantly swayed you away from it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it definitely illustrates to me that I'm very um, impressionable. I think I knew this already <laughs> in games. And, you know, I I completely accepted all the way through the game when you were saying crows are hard to win with, it's hard to have a route to victory, I don't know how I'm going to get the points. You know, I was looking at the score track and you were sitting there languishing in fourth or fifth place thinking, yeah, he's right, crows are really hard, you know, good for him for trying a difficult faction. I wasn't thinking, hey, he's tricking us. He's, you know, I should have known, I should have known. I'm not going <laughs> to trust you anymore, Peter. Which we carried neatly on to the third game we wanted to talk about. Guy Splits. 
Sorry, Guys Blitz Blitz 2. Yeah, we did play that in the interlude. That was good fun. And uh, Cockroach Poker as well. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. No, I was going to carry on to talk about the other big game we played, which was Unfathomable. Yes. Great game. Mm. Yeah, my first time playing it. Another player's first time at the table. A couple of people's first time playing it, but they played Battlestar Galactica. It's, broadly speaking, the same rules, but it's yes. set in an Arkham file setting in the 1910s. I think it's 1913. Yes, that sounds about right. Yes, On the Ad- Atlantica, I want to say the boat's called. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Battlestar Atlantica. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I'd played it. I wasn't much more experienced than you, Frank. I'd played this. I played this once before and I played BSG once before as well, but a long time ago. I actually played... Oh, I won't get into that. It's a long story. <laughs> but it sounds like two of the players at our table had played a lot of BSG and yeah. not together either. So they had their own little like meta <laughs> mm. yeah. of how they, how they would approach things. Yeah, absolutely. So the game, if you've not come across it yet, it's a board game where you're traveling across the Atlantic Ocean on a boat. It's being assailed by deep ones. And the player's goal is to get it across the ocean to Boston. However, at various points in the game, at the start and also later, it might turn out that some of the players are in fact deep ones, or deep one hybrids rather, and they're in league with Dagon and Hydra and trying to destroy the boat. And essentially, uh, if the boat doesn't make it, there are many ways that the deep ones can win, but there's only one way that the human players can win, which is to make it to Boston. So you start off all seemingly working together, but mm-hmm. some of you might be deep ones in hiding and they can be operating either clandestinely, sabotaging tests, damaging the boat, making suboptimal decisions, or they can also reveal themselves as deep ones, at which point they get slightly different abilities and can do things in a more overt and destructive way on the boat. Is that a good summation of what's yeah, going I think on. You've, you've, you've got that, yes. The element that I really enjoyed about this game is that each character has stats and they're drawn from the Eldritch Horror or Arkham uh, Arkham 3rd edition stats. So you've got Will I'm doing this the wrong way around. You've got Law, Influence, Observation, Strength and Will. They're your five. So it's five rather than four which has this weird mismatch with Arkham Horror, the card game. And in your stats, your scores are between one and three. And on your turn, you draw cards from little decks of cards that each relate to those stats. So you're drawing five cards a turn because you've always got five stats. So my character had two observation, one law and two will. So I'm drawing five cards of those three three decks a turn. The Mm. cards have numerical values, which you're putting into tests and you're trying to pass tests by meeting a certain score but they also have abilities written on them as well so there's this dual purpose of cards in your hand do i use it for an action do i use it for its ability there's one that has a sort of lucky style ability there's another that allows you to fight multiple times for a single action or do i save these because i like the numbers and i'm trying to pass tests and when you put cards into tests it's all done secretly so you, you know how many cards each person has put in, but you don't know what values they've put in. And you don't even know if the scores will add or subtract from the target threshold. 
So that's where the the secret traitors could be causing mayhem. Yeah, all in all, I thought that was a really cool system and I think it was a really fun one to manage. It gives you a resource pool to manage, which is your hand of cards, but they it's not the same as just clicking for resources and making sure you have enough money to do the things you want to do. It's it's a kind of active and I enjoyed having a hand of cards that I was working with. Reminded yeah. me of Arkham in that way. Like, <laughs> On okay. com- comfortable ground, having a, a kind of cards that did things. Yeah, exactly. That had more than one use as well. Exactly, but, and can be committed to tests. So I think that was a really nice element to it. And of course, traitors could then use the cards for ill rather than good, which is also a lovely element to it. You know, there's a card that gives someone else an extra action. Yeah. Great when you're all working as a team terrifying when the traitors are giving each other extractions absolutely yeah yeah it was um this is one of the things i thought was interesting that one of your well one of the other players one of your friends pointed out that a lot of the items which have an obvious i don't know pro-human use Mm. can can have a different use so there was a there was a, a, a i think the book of dagon allowed a character to move deep ones away from themselves on the boat but at the same time, if they were a traitor, it could be used to manipulate deep ones to go where you don't want them to go. Mm, <laughs> so into, yeah. a, into a room with other players so they can get attacked. Every weapon, you're thinking, great, this will help me fight against deep ones. But if yeah. you're a traitor, you can start using it, turn it against players and then sending them to the infirmary rather than you. Yes, absolutely, yeah. We had a crux turn where my character was very good at finding items and then passing them to other people. She was the stowaway. And I had to decide whether to give you a weapon or give someone else a weapon. And I chose to give someone else a weapon. I'd learned my lesson from Root not to trust you. And the other person I gave the weapon to promptly revealed themselves as a traitor. So yet again, I'd say that I'm very impressionable. I knew this about myself already, but it's an important lesson to have learned. I'm glad there's not a traitor mechanic in Arkham. Because I think <laughs> not yet. Yeah, not yet, exactly. So what else, what else did you pull from this into Arkham then? I found in this that with only two actions a turn and with a lot we needed to do, it became a case of really focusing in on what each person was good at and trying to play to your strengths. Yeah. So I was good at items. I was a bit of a generalist. So I just lent quite heavily into that, collecting lots of items, and then being almost a support character. And I really enjoyed that. And I I helped a lot with tests because I think it's observation was quite handy with tests and will was also quite handy with tests. Yeah. Your character, by contrast, was fighty. You got a lot of strength cards. You had a gun. You focused a lot on just mowing down deep ones on the deck. Yeah. That was really fun to watch, by the way. Yeah, yeah. You rolled very well. Well, I I, I was rolling very hot. But even then, I think it was very much a case of sticking to Jamie's strengths. Yeah, absolutely. Shooting shooting things, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I think that that's, that's a legit observation. And I think the other thing with only two actions... If you're using your actions to move, you you only get half a turn, right? Those yeah. movement actions are so crucial. So so quite a few characters will have an ability which is like do a thing and then take an action. Mm. So that can be to then move to somewhere else where something else need, 
you need to do something else, right? Yes. Yeah. I believe Arjun Singh can like move to a deck space and then carry out an action as well. Yeah. Which makes him great for like rescuing passengers and things like that. Exactly, but but yeah. But that action to move really saps your turn. Mm-hmm. You you're half as effective if you're having to move every turn to do something. If you can somehow magically already be in the place where you need to do an action, it's so much better. Absolutely the case. It really highlights, I think in Arkham, it validates my, my view always that movement actions are one of the actions that's it's easiest to to feel like it isn't wasted, but, but isn't. I always, always consider if I need to move because mm. it's just throwing an action away. If I don't, if it turns out I didn't need to, yeah. One of the ways that you can get taxed in Arkham is you draw an enemy. Thinking about Solo here in particular, particular, and if you're like, oh yeah, you know, you know, next turn I'm going to spend a couple of actions getting these clues, and then last action I'll move. Yeah, and then you draw an enemy, and you're like, oh, hang on, I need to evade the enemy, and I was going to spend a couple of actions getting these clues, and I need to move. It can all just get really clogged up. And I found by the end of Unfathomable, that was deliberately the case. There were too many things for us to firefight and deal with. So we had to be really selective about, well, if we're going to move, is it going to take us to a place where next round we can do two actions worth there? Because if it's not, there's just no point doing it. You may as well stay where you are and do two actions or help someone else get off the deck or, or whatever it is. As luck would have it, where we were seated, we had three human players and then two deep one hybrids. So going around the table, it would be the human players' turns and then the hybrids' turns, basically. And another player pointed out that that's a really unlucky way to be playing because it means the deep ones get almost a power turn. They both get to act without anyone interrupting that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So the late stage of the game, there was a really fascinating flow to it of us really scrambling in our three turns preparing the deep, for yeah, the onslaught preparing yeah. for them and we we made it to boston but we were pretty sure that if they'd had one more turn they would have done enough to destroy the ship yes yeah yeah we were very low on some resources and we took a gamble actually to 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 propel the ship forward to reach boston despite the fact we were gambling with one, one of the resources, resources that, that if, really if it, yeah exactly if we, if we'd failed that last roll and I think it was like a it was a three quarters chance or something like that to pass we would have lost the game so yeah it was a proper nail biter it came down to uh, I suppose pushing your luck and it came down to us really focusing in on doing what we were good at doing because we worked out we could it sort of overcharge the engines isn't it it's go faster we realised we had a good chance of passing that test if all three of us put something in and we thought that they could probably not stop us. So yeah, it was it was a fascinating finale, I'd say, and really enjoyed it. I suppose the other thing that I really enjoyed about Unfathomable was playing an Arkham Files game that wasn't Arkham Files, insofar mm. as you know, it was a cast of characters. There's 10 characters in the box. They all felt like Arkham-like characters, yeah. but they're not drawn from your Daisy Walker, your Harvey Walters, Agnes Baker stock, which I've seen across multiple games now. Yes. 
there are some hints about how they connect into the backstories of other characters. Yeah, there's a I mean, Beatrice the most, Sharp. Exactly. The most obvious is Beatrice, who I think is probably Amanda's older sister. Yeah. Certainly. And a she's a mathematician. She's so a mathematician, the, yeah. Yeah, there's like a family connection there about academia and study. So if if I'm if I was to 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 zoom out and see the bigger picture, one of the criticisms pointed at uh, unfathomable, although I think its mechanics are a very good refinement of the BSG mechanics. It's a real shame to lose the theme of BSG because it fit it fit it so well. Mm-hmm. And and superficially I think there is a there is a good fit for the theme here. But you do lose those recognizable characters from B- BSG mm-hmm. and replace them with characters no one's heard of, which is doubly yeah. surprising because their character it's it's a setting that has is best well, known characters. for its selection of <laughs> yeah. characters, right? That's yeah. the main yeah. thing connecting the Arkham Files games because the setting itself, the Arkham Files setting, is very... It's its just a kind of mythos, slightly pulpier version of the mythos. The mm-hmm. thing that makes it stand out, the people that you play in each game, are the characters. Yeah. You have your connection to certain characters, you care about certain characters. Exactly, yeah. And I, and I think the, the reason is, and, and one of the other players at the table echoed this, there's almost like a canon reason here you don't want to suggest that any of the regular arkham characters were maybe a deep one mm-hmm. or a deep one hybrid it doesn't yeah. kind of make sense thematically but i that feels pretty weak to me i just think it was a real shame not to have gone back and included some of those well-known characters that we could then kind of hammer up our role-playing <laughs> yeah our role-playing of you know you've got um, to be silas on the deck right? well well exactly and you know there's Ish- ishmael marsh is one of the characters mm-hmm. so he's got that connection back to the marsh family you could have easily had silas in there yeah and there's a yeah. there's a there's an orphan stowaway who could have easily been wendy yeah that was me samira and yeah i don't want to say it's a missed opportunity because i really like the cast of characters that are there it's a really nice diverse cast and I think it's nicely balanced across them. But it is a shame to lose those recognisable, iconic characters. Yeah, I hear you on that. I Where I was going originally with the point is I quite enjoyed meeting new people. I like found that refreshing, that it wasn't the same old. And I was sort of excited to want to know more about them, I think. And I think, yeah, wanting to go deeper. I think particularly that point of that it's hard to feel too invested when it's essentially five strangers. I, I'd agree with. I Can I even remember? Yeah, I think I can remember everyone who was playing. But, you know, particularly when you get into the mechanics of a game, you can lose sight of character quite easily. For me, the, the bigger question was, could we see those characters come into Arkham, the card game, 10 years older? And I think, weirdly, that point about they could each be a deep one is maybe why we wouldn't see them. Because yeah. all of their backstories also point to a time where they might have become hybridized. They don't even know what the term is. So so straight away they're not. Which is it's an interesting question though, isn't it? Do do the Arkham LCG characters need to be pure? Massive yeah. hesitation using that word. <laughs> need to be goodies. I don't know. I don't know. Fascinating to me. I think really fun to see another corner of the to see the to see the IP expanded in that way, but yeah, I understand that that means for fans of the IP that might be disappointing. 
yeah. weirdly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing a really good effort at sitting on the fence. Here. <laughs> <laughs> cool. We just wanted to share that we played some games and that we thought about Arkham all the way through in one way or another. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're drawn to the flame on Facebook, Twitter, Designed by Humans, and Patreon. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I'm United everywhere. That's U N I T L E D. I'm on Twitter and Discord and Reddit and Instagram as the United. So, yeah, please say hello. How about you, Frank? I'm FB on Twitter. That's E P H underscore B E E. And I'm around the place as Zooey Glass and Zozo. Say hello as well. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. On the evening of Wednesday, August 27th, 1913, at about 8.30 o'clock, the population of the small seaside village of Potawankit, Maine, USA, was aroused by a thunderous report accompanied by a blinding flash and persons near the shore beheld a mammoth ball of fire dart from the heavens into the sea but a short distance out, sending up a prodigious column of water. The following Sunday, a fishing party composed of James Phillips, Sean, and Andy Cockgreave caught in their trawl and dragged ashore a massive metallic rock, weighing 360 pounds, and looking, as Mr Cockgreave said, like a piece of slag. Professor Jeff Sylvester of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who examined samples of the strange stone, declared it a true meteorite, an opinion in which Dr. Cameron McDowell of Heidelberg, interned in 1918 as a dangerous enemy alien, does not concur. Professor Prinney of Columbia College adopts a less dogmatic ground, pointing out that certain utterly unknown ingredients are present in large quantities and warning that no classification is as yet possible.